0: New Year, how are we doing? Good. good. It's good to see you, and uh, I hope your year's off to a great start. You're in church, so that's a good start, and uh, we are glad you're here. My name is Jason. I am the pastor, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to get a chance to do that. Hopefully, maybe we could do that after uh, after the service. But I have so much to say, like Willy Wonka, and not enough time to say it. Okay. And so I want to just jump right in, Uh, skip all the formalities and jump right in, because there's so much I want to talk about with you today, Uh, because what we're doing is we're starting the year talking about happiness, which is a great topic, happiness. Uh, As we start the new year, I can't think of a better topic to talk about, because coming out of 2020, maybe you were lacking in it, in happiness, maybe you want more of it, but it really doesn't matter what year it is, it doesn't matter what year you start at or pick. We all would like for things to go a little bit better. A few nights ago, I was reading a bedtime story to my kids and I let them pick the book and they picked the book Aladdin. And so we're reading it and, uh, and I, you know, at a certain point I said to the kids, I said, Hey, if you found a genie in a bottle and you got three wishes, what would you wish for? And they all gave some great answers. Um, and, uh, one of my kids said for COVID to go away, you know, and like different things and. Uh, Zeke, our youngest, he said, I know what I would wish for. I said, what would you wish for, buddy? He said, number one, um, I, I would wish to, to be able to boss people around. <laughs> number two, I wish my parents would disappear. And number three, an electric scooter. Um, he wants to go away. And so just pray for whoever's teaching his class this morning uh, that they'll be okay. And that's funny, but isn't it true that if you got three wishes, they would sound a little bit like that? It would sound a little bit like, I wish I was a little more in charge, got to do a little more of what I wanted to do and could just get away whenever I wanted to. I think you probably would say something like that. And um, the reason that that is, is because there is something inside of us that has been there since we were old enough to start putting our thoughts together that is convinced that we know how to make a better life for ourselves. We're convinced of it, that if we got our way a little bit more, our life would be a little bit better. Here's the problem, and and the the tension in that idea is that we have had control, and we don't have the life we want. So on one hand, we think, if I had more control, I would be a little bit more happy. On the other hand, we have to admit, if we're honest, we look back on our lives and say, as I have had more and more control, I am not more and more happier, right? Right? And so this is what we're going to try to answer. This is the goal. This is the objective of these next several weeks is we want to answer this question. Does Jesus actually give you a better life? Does Jesus actually give you a better life? Some of you have been told that your whole life. You don't believe it. Some of you have been forced to come to church. You definitely don't believe it. Some of you think religion maybe in general would, but Jesus, you're not sure. And we want to talk about that. Does Jesus actually give you a better life. Now you're sitting in church and I'm a preacher and you're listening to me. So you know, the answer is yes. It's not a trick question, but I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to come to that conclusion for yourself. And here's why this is so important, because if you don't come to that conclusion for yourself, here's what's going to happen. Either bitterness or hypocrisy. It's the only two options. If you don't come to the conclusion for yourself that Jesus and the Jesus way is the best way, you're either going to end up bitter or a hypocrite. Let me show you how this works. Let me show you how this works. So uh, you, Jesus says that uh, we should be generous. We should give. And you've heard that. And somebody's told you that. And the preacher says that. But you don't really believe that. But you say, you know what, here, just take it. If that's what I'm supposed to do, here, just take it. And you do that. But if you keep doing that, eventually what's going to happen is bitterness that you have to give it. You don't want to give it, you give it, but you're bitter about it. Or what about the fact that Jesus says that sex is at its absolute best design between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. You've heard that, but you don't believe that. And so you figure out behind the scenes how to get what you want, but you act in public like you don't do those things, and now you're hypocritical. It is absolutely essential that you, with the Holy Spirit's help, come to the conclusion that Jesus is the absolute only hope for your life, that Jesus' way is the, is the best way. It's the only way that you'll ever truly feel the way that you so desperately long to feel. If you take my word for it or your parents' word for it or your spouse's word for it or you just come along because you wanna be a good dad or a good mom or a good citizen, you'll do the actions, but you'll either be bitter or hypocritical. What Jesus wants is for you to believe it, to embrace it, to live it out and to feel the way. That's what we're all going for. You wanna feel the way that you have so desperately longed to feel. And other things have made you feel that way for a period of time. All along the way, you got these little hits of happiness, and you felt this certain feeling. And at some point in the in the process, you even believed that this would last. This this feeling would not go out, even though other feelings it's a career, it's a amount of money, it's a relationship, it's it's an accomplishment, whatever it is. You you were convinced this would never go away, but it did. It did. So you have to decide, is the Jesus way the best way? Does Jesus actually give you a better life? Now, just to be clear, this is not a one-time decision. It's an everyday decision. You got to decide every day. You got to decide at different moments throughout your day, is the Jesus way the best way? You get a bonus at work and you're trying to decide if you should tithe on that bonus or unexpected or buy a new TV. If you can only do one, right? you got to say, is the Jesus way the best way? someone you're in a relationship with is pulling you away from the person that you know God wants you to be, but you love them and you're not sure you can lay it down and you got to decide, is Jesus way the best way? You get really bad news that crushes your hopes and dreams. And now you're not sure who you can trust and what the future holds. You got to decide, can you trust Jesus? Can you trust God with your future? Your marriage is struggling. You're trying to decide if unhappily married is better than happily divorced. You gotta decide is the Jesus way the best way. And at each of these crossroads and a thousand others, we have to decide. Do I really believe that Jesus is the best way? The Jesus way is the best way to live my life? Do I do I believe that, that Jesus will, will actually give me a better life? That feeling that I've always wanted to feel. You have to decide, do you really believe that you will find the happiness, contentment, peace, and joy that you so desperately want in Jesus, even when it seems so counterintuitive? Most of you know I love golf. Um, I I like to play golf. When people say, have you been playing a lot? I say, not as much as I want. Um, But one of the things that makes golf so hard, and when I'm trying to give people advice, it doesn't always work. But one of the things that makes golf so hard is everything's backwards. You want to hit the ball left, you got to swing right. You want to hit it right, you got to swing left. You want to hit it far, you got to swing easy. And it's a it's, it's counterintuitive game, which is why most people really struggle with it. You have to think backwards. And in a lot of ways, the Jesus way is a backwards, counterintuitive way, which is why at every step along the way, we're not convinced it's the best way. But here's what Jesus said in John 10:10. I want to read you what Jesus said, and then I want to read you what science says. Scripture and science make a dynamic duo. And this is what Jesus said in John 10, 10, He said, the thief, talking about the enemy, the devil, its purpose is to still kill and destroy. But my purpose, talking about Jesus, my purpose is to give them, you and me, disciples, followers, everyone, humanity, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Jesus way is the way to a rich and satisfying life? Even as I say that, some of you are like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Culture would say, this is, this is asinine. This is ridiculous. If you were to walk up to someone who wasn't a Christian or someone who's hostile to religion, and you would say, you know, I believe that Jesus gives you a rich and satisfying life, they would laugh at you or mock you or scoff at you. And they would tell you that Christianity is repressive and it's old fashioned. They would say there's no joy in it and that it's just emotional manipulation. Some of you right now, listen to me. You you believe that to be true as well. But did you know that some of the smartest smartest scientific and health experts in the world would disagree with that idea that Christianity is old-fashioned, repressive, and non-joyful, even the non-Christian ones? I'm not even talking about the Christian medical experts. I'm talking about the non-Christian ones. In 2016, Harvard professor Tyler Vanderwill and journalist John Sniff wrote a, a USA Today op-ed entitled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. And here's what they ask in that, that op-ed. They, they ask the question, if you could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? I mean, think about that. If you had a pill, if you had a drink, if you had an elixir. That could cure mental and emotional health for millions of Americans at no cost. What would we say about that drug, about that elixir? How would we talk about it, report on it, praise it, get excited about it? The rest of the article goes on to outline the mental and physical health benefits that are correlated with regular religious participation. And here, here's what they found. Research suggests that those who regularly attend worship services so if you regularly attend worship services, this is what the research found is that people who regularly attend are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce are more self-controlled and even reduce mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period. Now, the mortality rate for everybody is 100, okay? But over a 15-year period, people who regularly attend church, uh, the, the mortality rates get down 20 by, uh, by 20 to 30%. Now, atheists... Atheist, social psychologist uh, psychologist Jonathan Hatt said this. He said, surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer lived, and are more generous to charity and to each other than our secular people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time and their blood. So there you go. If you're a blood giver, (laughs) Christians are dominating the blood market. Just last month, Gallup did a poll asking people to rate their mental health in 2020 after such a challenging year. And Gallup has done this poll every year since 2001. And every year, every demographic, I'm sorry, in, in, and in 2020, every demographic said they were in a worse mental place than 2019 except one demographic. This is, this is a setup. You know what the one demographic is? Except one demographic, the people who regularly attend worship services. People who regularly attend worship services were actually in a better mental place than the rest of the country. Only demographic. It went up 4% mental health. Everyone else went down. Now, how is that possible? You're listening and you say, How is that possible after that year that somebody could say they're in a better mental place? I'm so glad you asked, and I'm so glad you're here. The happiness advantage, that's how. Whether you're watching online, you're part of church, we're a family, you're in. Whether you're here in the room, whether you're in the overflow room, because we got to social distance a little bit, you're a part of this. And even you deciding to be here today, now we're going to talk about more than that, but even you deciding to be here today is making your life better. It's making your life better. And to be clear, coming to church doesn't mean that you're an authentic Christian, but it is an indicator that you are seeking something, something spiritual. And here's what I love about all this research, and there's more that we'll talk about, but it turns out that Jesus knew what he was talking about all along. Isn't that crazy? That Jesus actually knew what he was talking about. That the Jesus way is the way to a rich and satisfying life. So over the next few weeks, here's what we're going to discover is that Jesus doesn't just give you eternal life. He gives you a better life too. This is our big idea. We're going to keep coming back to this week after week. That Jesus doesn't just give you eternal life, thankful for eternal life. He doesn't just give you eternal life. He gives you a better life too. The joy that the world, that culture offers you is always a counterfeit. Jesus offers you the real thing. But the way that you find it is to fight against every natural desire and tendency that you have picked up along the way. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at five teachings of Christianity. Five teachings of Christianity that are counterintuitive but lead to the happiness that we all want. And it's backed by scripture and it's backed by science. Not just scripture. Scripture and science. We're going to look at this and the five teachings of Christianity that lead to a happier life. If you do not want a happier life, take the next five Sundays off. But if you do... Be a part of it here, online, wherever you are. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. I'll just go ahead and tease it for you. The five practices of Christianity that we're going to talk about that's backed by Scripture and science are going to give you a healthier, healthier a happier life is generosity. We put that one first so you couldn't skip that week. Self-control, <laughs> gratitude, purpose, and forgiveness. There's more than this, but these five practices, these five tenets of Christianity, generosity, self-control, gratitude, purpose, and forgiveness are the foundation that set you up for a happier life. That if you as a follower of Jesus practice generosity, self-control, gratitude, live with purpose, and forgive people, that you have a happiness advantage over people who do not. Now, I want everybody to look at me, focus, watching online, overflow, wherever you are. I want everybody to look at me. The happiest you will ever be will be a life fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The happiest that you will ever be will be a life fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. But can I tell you the most miserable you'll ever be? It's not a life completely absent of Jesus Christ. The most miserable you will ever be will be a half Committed life to Jesus Christ. It's not that all Jesus makes you happier and no Jesus makes you miserable. No, it's actually the opposite of that. That all Jesus is the happier, the happiest you'll ever be. But if you are straddling the line because you don't really want to do it, but you have to do it, it's the most miserable you'll ever be. So I'm gonna say something you never expected a preacher to say. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. If you don't want to come, don't come. Tell your spouse that your pastor gave you permission to not come until you want to come. Now, I believe by coming, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart and your mind. And I have too many stories of too many friends who didn't want to come. And now they're all in and they love Jesus and life's better than it's ever been. But I'm telling you that misery and underwhelming feeling that you feel is mostly because you are trying to be a person that in your heart of hearts you don't really want to be. So stop. So stop. And here's why I would be bold enough to say that. Because the Bible teaches us that you got to go be lost to realize you're lost. That you got to leave home to realize home is where you want to be. You've got to go experience what the world has for you fully to realize that what the world has for you doesn't live up to what you always thought that it would The, the, the happiest you'll ever be is fully committed and surrendered to Jesus. So that was just my intro, okay? I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to talk about generosity. I told you I had a lot, but that was good. I went faster than I thought. I want to pray for us because he, my prayer, honest to goodness, my prayer is this, is that you wouldn't take my word for it. You wouldn't think that these are just topics that we talk about because we're in church and a pastor talks about these things and this is what you know, you're supposed to do. I want you to genuinely believe that things like generosity and self-control and purpose and gratitude and forgiveness and the Jesus way and a life fully surrendered to Jesus is the best decision you'll ever make. And most of us in this room are Christians. Most of us in this room are saved. We've prayed a prayer. We've committed our life to Jesus in whatever way you would define that as. But I'm not convinced that everybody in this room believes that a life fully surrendered to Jesus is the happiest life you could ever have. And so my prayer is by the end of this month, you'd believe it. So can we pray together? God, I pray that your words, not my words, but your words, somehow through my words that I that I'd say and and Wherever I go, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would take those words and that they would be heard exactly how they need to be heard. They would go into the hearts and the minds of every single person watching, listening right now, later on, or in the room with me. And that we would have an experience that only the Holy Spirit can give where we would be convinced of something that up to this point in our whole life we were sure was untrue, but now we are convinced that it's true. Only the Holy Spirit can do that, and God, that's what I'm asking you to do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. So we're going to start by talking about generosity. Generosity. And, and the way that we're gonna do that is we're gonna read a story that Jesus told and it's gonna be in Luke 12, it'll be on the screen. If you have a Bible or a phone, you can pick that out. But in, but in Luke 12, Jesus is gonna tell a story and then in that story, he, he, we're gonna answer three questions from that story and I wanna go ahead and give them to you so you can, for all the note takers in the room, you can outline that paper, all right? But, but three questions that we're gonna answer in this story in Luke 12, how do you measure your life? How do you live life and what's left after your life? How do you measure life? How do you live life and what's left after your life? So we're going to start at verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, read till 21. This is what it says. It says, then someone called from the crowd, teacher... Talking to Jesus, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, friend, who made me judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said, Jesus, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Now let's stop because we're going to read 16 in just a second, but let's stop for a second. Jesus is not saying that you should not get an inheritance. Jesus isn't saying there aren't times where maybe you need to legally you know, help with a will or Jesus isn't saying you can't come to him and talk to him about things that are bothering you and your family. He's specifically addressing the issue of greed and he's going to tell a story to do that in verse 16. Then Jesus told him a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops and he said to himself, what should I do? How do I have room for all my crops? And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend. You know, dude's kind of, you know, he calls himself my friend. You have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you have worked for? Yes, a person is a fool, Jesus said, to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. I've taught on this story several times over the years. And I think one of the reasons I always come back to this story is because it is so countercultural. I mean, at first reading, it's kind of hard to figure out why Jesus would have a problem with this man. It sounds like for the most part, he's done everything Dave Ramsey says to do for the most part. He's obviously successful, he's a business owner, he's a saver, he invests money in good assets, high real estate, but still God calls him a fool. And if we're being honest, given the choice, we would want his life. Even knowing that God called him a fool, if I said you could have his life, you'd say, yeah, I'd take that life. Even knowing God said he's a fool. So why would God call a successful business owner who is good with money a fool? To answer that question, we're, we're going to answer the three questions that Jesus asked in the story. He didn't actually ask these questions. He made comments. And from those comments, we can answer, we can ask three questions. He implies them. But it forces an answer for me, from me and, and for you. So let me give them to you again. Here's the three questions we're going to answer. How do you measure life? How do you live life? And what's left after your life? Let's look at each one of these. First question Jesus asks is, how do you measure life? Your life. How do you measure life? How do you measure life? Look at verse 15. He said, Jesus said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Now, why would Jesus feel the need to say that? Well, the reason he said it is because someone in the crowd asked him to settle a family dispute over an inheritance. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've done this where, where you've got to settle the estate of someone who has passed away. But instead of helping the man get his money, Jesus addressed why the inheritance was so important to the guy. That he would come to Jesus and ask for help. And this is really interesting, Jesus' response to the man. Jesus says... You have to watch out, beware, watch out, for what? For every kind of greed. Now, there are a few places in the Bible, well, there's several places in the Bible, where God or Jesus tells someone to watch out, gives them a warning, because there's a potential danger that's waiting for them that they don't see, okay? An angel or God or Jesus or someone will say, you gotta beware, watch out. But what's interesting is that as you read through the teachings of Jesus or God or the prophets, you don't find anywhere in the Bible where, where someone says, watch out that you don't lie. You don't find anywhere that it says, watch out that you don't steal. Why, that's interesting. Why, why would God say, watch out for greed, but nowhere in the Bible does it say, watch out that you don't lie, watch out that you don't steal, watch out that you aren't disrespectful. Why wouldn't he, he caution us to watch out for those things? Well, the reason is because we aren't blind to those things. We know when we lie. We know when we're stealing. We know. We know when we're lusting. And, and so Jesus is making the, the point to this man that greed is something that we don't see. Greed is something that we're blind to in our lives. That's why we have to watch out for it. Because we don't see it in our lives. Greed is just as destructive as lying or stealing or adultery, but it's way more deceptive. Destructive, just as destructive, but way more deceptive. No one thinks they're greedy. Have you ever met anybody who's like, you know what my problem is? And like in your small group, like, hey, let's do prayer requests. Let's go around the table. Just pray for me, man. I'm really greedy. <laughs> Have you ever met anyone who's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just greedy, man. This Greed. <laughs> This greed. No. No one. In 13 years leading this church, do you know that I've never had one person ask me to pray for their greed? 13 years. Now, why do you think that is? Do you think that's be, is that because there's no one in our congregation who struggles with greed? Do you think it's possible that no one in any growth group struggles with greed? Is that why no one's asked for prayer for greed? Probably not. Probably not. Everyone knows someone who's greedy, but no one thinks they're greedy. And and this uh, this is really interesting to me. That Jesus talked about money 10 times more than he talked about all the dangers of sex. But I get asked to pray about sex all the time. 13 years, never once been asked to pray about greed. But lust, adultery, sex, romance, marriage. All the time. That's what I'm, hey, pastor, just pray for me, man. Wow. And it's, it's always something sexual. But Jesus talked about money 10 times more than he talked about sex, and no one's ever asked me to pray about it. Wow. Why? Because you got to watch out for it because you can't see it. You can't see it. Why can't we see it? That's another question we could ask. Why can't we see greed? Well, there's other answers to that question. But one answer that we know is Jesus said, one of the reasons you can't see it is because there's all different kinds of it. He said, watch out for all kinds of greed. Maybe you thought there's only one kind of greed. It's what rich people do. But Jesus says, there's all kinds of greed and you have to watch, you have to watch out for it. Because whatever kind you have doesn't feel like greed. But whatever kind they have, just greedy sons of guns. You know what I'm talking about? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. But nothing will reveal greed like family inheritance. Nothing. If you've gone through this, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, trust me. Nothing will bring greed out of people like wondering who gets mom and dad's money, if they have any. It tears families apart. And so Jesus implies here, and, and, and we get our first question does money change the way you measure your life? He says to this man, "Who's like, Jesus, help me get my money. I need my inheritance. Help me get my money. And Jesus says, and you better watch out, dude. You better watch out. Because I think you're measuring your life with the wrong standard. So maybe this would be a good time to ask you that same question. Would $100,000 change the way that you measure your life? Like right now, if, I gave, if it just said, "Hey, check your bank account. There's a hundred more thousand. There's a hundred thousand more dollars in there." Of course, that would be exciting. But would it change the way that you measure your life? Would it change your worth—not your net worth, but your worth—the way you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror? The way what you where you feel like you fit in society. Would it change the way? Would it change your confidence? Would it change fear and anxiety, arrogance, pride, humility? What about a million? Do you think people with a million dollars are worth more than people without a million dollars? Not net worth, personal worth. Do you think someone with a million dollars is worth more than someone without a million? Now, culture would say yes. That's what culture would say. What does the Jesus way say? Do you think you would be more valuable if you had money? The way that you measure your life. The way you measure whether your life is good or bad. Jesus says, you got to watch out because greed is just the wrong form of measurement. Greed is just the wrong form of measurement. And so Jesus asks the question, how do you measure your life? And if greed is using the wrong measurement to measure your life, how do you measure your life? What is the financial measurement that makes you feel like you have a good life? I want you to think about that question. Now, here's the next question. Whatever that standard or measurement is that you use to measure whether or not you have a good life, next question, has that standard of measurement changed over the years for you? I bet it has. And I remember when Andrew and I got married, it's like, well, when we make it, like, what will we do? I was like, big screen TV. Andrew's like, just a walk-in closet. If we just had our own bathroom. We set our sights high, okay? And like two years later, we had it. But then we, we changed the measurement. And then we changed the me- And then we got a nice house, but then our friends got a nicer house and we changed the measurement. Then we made a certain amount of money, but then we changed the measurement. Because that's what greed is. It's the wrong form of measurement. And that's why we got to watch out for it. Culture tells you that happiness is found at 100,000 or a million or winning the lottery or getting a large inheritance, but that's a lie. 2006, atheist psychologist, we talked about him earlier, Jonathan Hadd, he published something called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom. And in one of the book's most striking moments, Hadd uh, had, describes two people. And I want to do this exercise with you. He describes two people. The first person that we meet is Bob. Bob is 35 years old, single, white, attractive, and athletic. Almost, just imagine me, okay? I'm kidding. No, he's, Bob's way better looking than me. He earns $100,000. Y'all laughed way too much at that. He, he earns $100,000 a year. He lives in sunny Southern California. He's highly intellectual. He, he spends his free time reading and going to museums. That's Bob. Next, he tells us about Mary. Mary and her husband live in snowy Buffalo, New York, where they earn a combined income of 40000 Mary is 65 years old, black, overweight, plain in appearance. She's highly sociable. She spends her free time mostly in activities related to her church. She's on dialysis for kidney problems. She has health problems, lives in relative poverty, and has doubtlessly endured a lifetime of discrimination. And this atheist, Jonathan Hadd, asked the question, would you rather be Bob or Mary? Let's not rush past that. Would you rather be Bob or Mary? This man who does not even believe in God based on science says that while that may sound like a stupid question, based on a number of factors, including stable marriage and religion, people like Mary consistently rate as happier than people like Bob. Now, everybody listen to me. Of course, a little money can make a big difference, especially in areas of poverty, which is why the Bible talks over and over again about making sure we help those who are living in awful, poverty conditions. We got to share with those who need it the most. But research shows overwhelmingly that beyond a basic level of security, increased wealth only slightly correlated with an increased sense of well-being. Economist Jeffrey Sachs said in the World Happiness Report in 2018 that in the U.S., income per capita has more than doubled since 1972, while happiness has remained roughly unchanged or even declined. More money doesn't make you happier. It's the wrong measurement. But I'm willing to bet you already knew this because if I asked you who's the happiest person you've ever known, I would be willing to bet they were not incredibly wealthy. Wow. Think about it. Who's the happiest person that you've ever known in your life? I would be willing to bet they did not have a lot of money, they were just incredibly content. So how do you measure your life? Let's look at the next question Jesus asked. Jesus asked, how do you live life? How do you live life? And in this parable, Jesus describes two ways that we are greedy. You remember he said there's all different kinds of greed. And and I would say most of us fall into one of these two camps. He said that some people are greedy in the traditional way that we think of it, bigger barns. Uh, eat, Eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up buy stuff, get stuff, go go bigger, right? That greed shows itself through spending. But but the people who are doing those things, they don't see it as greed. They're providing for their family. They are, uh, you know, having fun with the money that they've worked so hard to earn. They're just enjoying the results of their heart. They're just investing in better real estate. That's why they're getting a bigger house. They're not greedy. They're just being wise with their money. That's one kind of greed. And so Jesus would say, how do you live your life? How does greed show itself in your life? Is it through spending and getting and eat, drink, and be merry and... When you think about getting more money, the first thing you think of is how you're going to use and spend that money and enjoy that money. Because that's one way that you live your life. But in this story, the guy also has another form. As he said, we're going to pile up, pile up, pile up the wheat, pile up the wheat. Pile. We're just going to keep piling it up, piling it so that I'll never have to worry again. Now see, this kind of greed is way more subtle and sneaky. It's a greed that shows up in the form of saving. Not all saving, of course. The Bible is clear that we should save. But, but some people, instead of spending being the display for their greed, security is the display for their greed. No amount of money in the bank is enough. No amount of retirement is enough. Eat, drink, and be merry. Are you crazy? No, it's beans, rice, and, you know, make sure that you only flush the toilet every couple of hours. You know what I'm talking about? Like, Wisdom in both, we'll talk about that. But it's also the way that greed, different kinds of greed display themselves. Some people show their greed traditionally through spending. Some people do it in a more subtle way in saving, but both of them is a way that you live your life under the assumption that more will be what brings happiness to you. But the Bible teaches those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. We talk about this all the time. We, this isn't just some grand religion. We, our hope is in a person. Our faith is in a person. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 2,000-ish years ago, he showed up and walked this earth and he created a way of life and he taught us a way of life. So if our faith is in Jesus, we, we follow the Jesus way. Well, what's the Jesus way to live your life financially? You can write this down. We don't have time to talk about it, but I'm going to give it to you. The Jesus way to manage money. This is what the Bible teaches us. The Jesus way to manage money. Earn it honestly. Save it gradually. Give it generously. Spend it wisely. Enjoy it carefully. This is what the Bible, this is what Jesus teaches us about managing money. The Jesus way to manage money. Earn it honestly. Save it gradually. Give it generously. Spend it wisely. Enjoy it carefully. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation for, from me towards you because I'm challenged by this as well. But do you really believe that this is the best way to the happiest life? Do you really believe that the Jesus way to managing money is the, is the best way to the best life? Jesus forces us to answer that question. How do you, how do you live? How do you live? But let me, let me ask one more question. Jesus implies from this story. We've looked at how we measure life. We've looked at how we live life. But let's talk about what's left after your life. Look at verse 20. God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you've worked for? This is an important question that Jesus asked. Who's going to get everything that you've worked for? I want you to think about that question. Now some of us, I say some of us, I can't say us anymore. Some of you are... Earlier in life, you know, high school student, middle school student, college student, starting your life, and you're not even thinking about what's left after life. That's fine. Um, Some of us have started thinking about that a little bit. Others thinking about it more. I want all of us to think about this for a second. Whatever it is that you get your hands on for the rest of your life or whatever it is that you have now, who's going to get what's left that What you've worked for after you die. Have you really ever thought about that question? Because everything you have is going to end up somewhere. Now you're thinking, I have a will. I know exactly where it's going to go. Okay. That's fine. But what about when they die? Or what about after them? See, everything that you own will be owned by someone else or end up somewhere else. Most of it's going to end up in a dump. But your money, house, clothes, cars, retirement, golf clubs, every single thing that you own will go somewhere If you think about it, you don't really own anything. You're just holding it until someone else owns it. Someone else is going to drive your car. Someone else is going to live in your house. Someone else maybe is going to wear your clothes. Someone else is definitely going to spend your money. And your kids and your grandkids are going to sell that stuff in a garage sale. And you love it so much. And they're going to take a dollar for five items. You can take it, matter of fact, if you have a truck. Like, you don't even have to pay me. Just take it. Now, now to be clear, Jesus is not saying you shouldn't have an inheritance. Matter of fact, Proverbs says a wise man leaves an inheritance. The Bible applauds it. Remember, Jesus is specifically addressing greed, using the wrong measurement. So we could paraphrase, we could say it this way. Jesus is saying, you fool, there's no such thing as rich dead people. That's one way you could say it. Or we could say it like this. You're a fool if you only think about wealth while you're alive. It's another way we could say it. And look at verse 21. We're going to wrap this up. Jesus said, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Here's what this is saying. This is saying that if being rich is most important to you, you'll never have a rich relationship with God. If being rich is most important to you, you'll never have a rich relationship with God. Because your relationship with God will conflict with your desire of what's most important in your life, which would be wealth. Nothing wrong with wealth. I'd like to attain some, work for it. Do the Jesus way. The Jesus way leads to a blessed life. You will be in a better financial situation. I believe that with all my heart. But if being wealthy is most important to you, you'll never have a religious relationship with God. And if that stings a little bit, it's supposed to. Because Jesus in another teaching doubled down on this when he said that money makes a terrific servant, but it makes a terrible master. And one of the ways that you can know if you have a rich relationship with God is how you think about and spend your money. Now, I wanna be clear, it's just one way. It's not the only way. But this story challenges us who want a rich relationship with God to have an urgency about how we think about, use and spend our money. And Jesus is saying, don't just store it up. Don't just use it for earthly things. He's saying, use it for godly things. Use it for godly things. And so, Jesus asked the question, who will get everything you've worked for? And I would love for us to just, as we get ready to end this sermon, really take a moment to think about that question. You're going to spend 50 to 60 years of your life making money. And then after you're gone, what will that money do? Where will it be? Who'll have it? And what will they be doing with it? What about this question? Where will your money be in 100 years? Maybe you have a, a, a dollar bill. I know we don't carry this around anymore, but... This dollar bill right here, it's probably going to be gone, ripped up, burned up, something. But where will this dollar bill be in a hundred years? Where will your money be in a hundred years? Your home, your car probably won't be running. Well, what about this? Where will your money be in 10,000 years? As believers in Jesus, we believe that there will be some form of existence 10,000 years from now. Where will your money be? Can I stretch it just a little bit further? Where will your money be in a million years? As believers in Jesus, we believe that there's gonna be some form of existence a million years from now. Where will your money be in a million years? You say, Jason, why are you asking me about a million years from now? I don't don't know. Here's why I'm asking. Because the Bible teaches us that there are only two things that will be around in a million years. There's only two things. People's souls and the church. That's it. The only thing that will be here a million years from now is people's souls and the church. Now, I'm not talking about Hope City Church because this, you know, building, we may not be here in three years. Okay, so I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about the church. Jesus said, I'm building the church and the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against it. It's his church. And and so we know that in a million years, only two things will exist, souls and church. So what if I told you that your money, and I say it like that, what if I told you? It sounds like an infomercial. Let's tell you somewhere different. In a million years, What if your money was affecting souls and the church? What if it lived on? Uh, My friend calls it E-R-O-I, an eternal reward on investment. E-R-O-I. What if our generosity impacted eternity? I could go another hour, but I won't so much to say about this a passion of mine a spiritual gift of mine but the Bible teaches three specific ways that our generosity can affect souls he says give to the poor give to the poor but he also says the poor will always be with you so you'll never solve a poor problem with money but, you, but just because you can't solve the problem doesn't mean you shouldn't give to it Give to the poor. He says, two, give to needy people. Now, needy people can be any people. I've lived in friends' basements in the last decade because I was needy. Uh, Cars breaking down and bills needing to be paid. And most people in America honestly aren't poor according to world standards, but that's neither here nor there for us. But we are needy. We are needy. And then the third way he says you affect people's souls is you give to the church. You give to the church. Now my iPad just died. So I'm gonna ask them to put on the screen the the three questions that I wanna challenge you with as we end this message. We give to the poor, we give to the needy, we give to the church. And I'm gonna tell you about that, but there's three questions if y'all have it back there. First question is this. What if the most important measurement for you this year was your giving? As we think about 2021, what if the most important measurement for you this year was your giving? Of all the things you're tracking and measuring, what if you said, you know what? Most important measurement is my giving. Second question is is this, is what if instead of raising your standard of living, you raised your standard of giving? What if instead of raising your standard of living, you raised your standard of giving? Let me give you one more question. What if you measured the eternal impact of your money? How much of what I'm making will make a difference a million years from now? And here's how we do that as a church. We do that through the form of tithing. I don't know what your um, church history is or religious background is. Around the beginning of every year, I take a little bit of time to just explain it because maybe you're not familiar with it. And this is countercultural, And this is why people who don't follow Jesus say it's insane. But tithing is very simply giving the first 10% of anything you receive to God through the local church. This is what the Bible teaches us. Do you have to tithe to go to heaven? Absolutely not. We're talking about happiness. We're talking about meaning and fulfillment. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus gets you to heaven, not tithing. But the Bible teaches that the Jesus way is giving the first 10% of anything you receive to God through the local church. And so here's what we do at Hope City. We've done this for years and years and years and years and years. We're gonna continue to do it. It's just a a 90-day tithe challenge. No gimmicks, no upsells, no strings attached. If you don't feel comfortable giving it to us, give it to another church, okay? But the Bible teaches we give it through our church. And so here's what we do. For 90 days, if you tithe, and at the end of that 90 days your life is not better in some way, more blessed in some way, there's not more happiness in some way, we'll give it all back to you. We'll keep up with it for 90 days and then we'll give it back to you. 100%, guaranteed, no no strings attached. We'll give it back to you. Because we believe it and we do it When Andrew and I get paid, we do it. When our staff does it, not because we have to do it, but because we want to do it. We get to do it because the Jesus way is the best way. And the happiest you'll ever be is a life fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And that includes your money. And so if you want to participate in that, because of COVID, we can't hand out the cards we normally hand out. So on the app, there's a link, first button that says, what does it say, Tithe Challenge? 90-Day Tithe Challenge. And you click on it, just put in your name. If you have any questions we'll answer them for you we'd love to do that uh, if you've got issues we'll talk about it you know if you got hurt from other church that's fine we'll talk about it we don't want anything from you we want something for you we believe that and this is the way we've done it for 13 years that's the way we're going to keep doing it all right i know this is like the longest message in the history of hope city church that's all right it's good it's a good way to start the year it's a good way to start the year the jesus way financially. I want to pray for us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that when we did not have a way to get to you, you made a way through Jesus Christ. That our hope is not in a rule book, that our hope is not in a building, that our hope is not in a pastor, but that our hope is in a person, Jesus Christ, who came lived, died, and rose from the dead so that we could have a relationship with you. So God, I pray that you would help us to believe the Holy Spirit would open our hearts, would draw us in and help us believe that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only thing that we can build our lives on that will help us find that feeling we so desperately wanna feel. So God, I pray that we would lay down anything else that trips us up or hinders us. We fully surrender our life to you. Trust you in every area of our life, including our money. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.